Good morning, good morning. You can have a seat. So this is the definition of difficult. You might not realize this, but we got these new lights, and so they gave me a three-by-three three box that I can move in. So it's going to be a rough morning, <laughs> just, just so you know. No, I'm just kidding. It's going to be a great morning. We ready? Have some fun? Good, good, good. I have uh, two kind of pieces of what I would call family business uh, that I want to make you aware of, and then we're going to jump in the message. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. But uh, family business number one is we got some merch for sale. Anyone grab a t-shirt on the way in? No? Okay, cool. That's awesome. One person did. Awesome. Limited run. When they're sold out, they're sold out. We're almost out. I think there's like less than 10 shirts left. So if you want one, grab one. They're pretty cool. But if they're cool, Pastor, why aren't you wearing them? Oh, well, because I wanted you to wear them. <laughs> okay, anyway, so get that. All right, number two, uh, we have been working on something for the past year. Now, some people know this, but not everyone knows this. And so I, I want to kind of pull back the curtain, if you will, and let you in on something that I'm, I'm really excited about. And I think it's going to be a game changer for us. But here's what I know. It's inevitably true in every stage of life. Change is hard. Amen? Okay, so warning, this is change. Peace, it's good change, all right? We have been working over the past year on, on what are we doing in our next-gen spaces regarding what we teach and the scope, the sequence, the, the, what is it producing? Now, now, here's what you need to hear. We do not do holy daycare. We do kids' church. There's a big difference in that, Right? We teach kids the important truths. We, we point people to Jesus. Even our young kids, we, we teach them these things. It's really important. We don't just watch them and smile at them because we're Christians. That's what holy daycare is. It's not that. In that, there's some exciting things happening. One of the things that we've identified this past year that we value is that everyone needs somebody. What I mean by that is intentional relationships matter. Having someone who can cry and mourn with you and having someone who can celebrate with you are key ingredients to a successful life. Everyone deserves someone that they can call that is safe, but is also can spur them on towards healthy living. Amen? Okay. Well, what we have discovered is, is that we can't just hope that that happens. We have to put effort into ensuring that happens. So here's what that means. Over the past year, we've been working through a new curriculum. And so that new curriculum is going to be rolled out in the next two weeks in all of our environments. So I'll give you an example. In our preschool, they have a brand new curriculum that's going to point them to this. But here's the crazy part. Starting in our twos and three-year-olds, they're going to start experiencing small group. I feel sorry for their teachers. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. I think it's amazing. But I, I just think that's crazy that it's not something that's caught. It's something that's taught. Being safe with people and working towards applying, applying, there's the word, applying biblical truth doesn't just happen. It takes effort. So then in twos and threes, and it keeps going. In elementary, we designed a brand new space. They've been in what we like to call the old gym. We've been renovating a room. We're not quite ready to show you, but It's gorgeous. Stay of the art. It's beautiful. We raised all those funds into the future. Thankfully, we didn't have to use any of our tithes. We just used all people's generosity and offering above the tithe to, to resource that, which is amazing. And that's going to open in a couple weeks. Yes, we can celebrate that. And it's crazy because we're changing the curriculum. So now in our K through third grades, everything revolves around a small group. There's this thought that's 
put out there, and then they have to work through the process of application in community, which is beautiful. In our middle school environments, in our high school environments, this is where you will experience the most amount of change. What I would tell you is over the last 30 plus years, youth ministry has changed. How we did things is no longer as effective as we look into the future. It doesn't mean it was wrong back then. We can honor the past and work towards the future. So I want to absolutely honor what we have done. I'm just telling you what got us there and what got us here won't get us there. So we have to change. Now we've been preparing for this. This is why we hired a new youth pastor. We hired him under this trajectory and this philosophy shift of youth ministry. And what we are saying is we are no longer, at least this year, doing event-style youth ministry, which is where you put on something cool and you hope people come and then you try to get to know them. We are putting all of our eggs in the basket of intentional communities. That means that all of our middle school leaders were asked, will you commit to three years of doing this? Because we are saying consistency is more important than hype. And they said yes. So starting in a couple weeks, our middle schoolers will be given an intentional leader. Our guys will be given, you know, like it's one to eight ratio. Eight guys, and they're going to do life with this person. And it's awesome. And they'll be with that person if they're a sixth grader for the next three years, Lord willing. Things happen. But in order to make that happen, we had to make a major change. And that major change is, is we're moving, which historically our Wednesday night encompassed all of our youth ministry. We are saying that Wednesday night is going to be a high school only element. And Sunday morning is going to be a junior high only element. So what does that mean for you parents? It means this, is that we have been crafting an experience shift that we hope you will feel, notice, and instantaneously, not just hope, I want to make sure we under-promise and over-deliver. If we are going to do Wednesday night-style youth ministry on Sunday morning, so we're going to have fun. It's going to be crazy. It's not going to be small groups. It's going to be a brand new experience for our junior hires on Sunday morning, but it's built around this idea that relationships matter and intentional small groups. On Wednesdays for our high school, one of the reasons we're removing junior hires from the mix is, is because what high schoolers talk about and what junior hires talk about are not on the same planet. And if you don't believe me, spend time with them. There are real life issues. Our students are walking away from Jesus upon graduation of high school at an astronomical rate. The only way we can course correct that is to level up our apologetics, our intentionality, and the topics we discuss. And removing the junior hires from the mix so that we can level up the maturity in the room is how we're going to accomplish that. We have also asked our high school leaders to commit to four years. Why? Because we are telling everyone that everyone needs somebody and relationship is more important than hype. It's more important than an event. It's more important than a calendar filled with stuff. Relationship is everything because relationship sustains beyond a calendar. So I say all that to say to you is, is there's a lot of change coming. I want to be very clear about it. I want to help you. We have a town hall for our parents this Wednesday. I would invite you, I will be on this as a Zoom call so you can log in. We are going to record it. We're going to send it out to all of the parents in our church's database when we're done. I will be there. Taj, our new youth pastor, will be there. But I am so excited that we've been able to make this change because here's what I will also remind you is we do not have a kids pastor right now. We, we have been operating all of this iterative change through people buying into the vision and making it happen. Key volunteers and some staff coming off the wall of the position we hired them to drive this. 
So that's pretty incredible that we're not waiting till that person gets here. We're building the foundation that they can run off of. So that's amazing. So pray for our kids, Pastor, because we need one. But all that's happened in the next two weeks, and I'm excited for you to hear more about it. And I know you're sitting here going, okay, stop talking about this. But I say this is because I'm going to tell you why holistically we're making this change today in the message. So I'm going to give you a heads up. If you're a note taker, we're going to fly. It's going to be a lot of information. We're going to move through an entire story of the Bible at rapid speed because it is all needed to make the point at the end. Okay? Are you with me? Are you ready? Do you have your coffee? Okay. So let's jump into it. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. And I hope you're ready. All right. Last week, we talked about legacy. And we celebrated Pastor Jim. And it was awesome. Thank you for everyone who made that happen. But I want to just recap a couple thoughts from that. We talked about legacy being something that we pass on to the next generation. It's something that we set in motion that hopefully gives them a better starting point than what we had. I put this on the screens last week. I'm going to put it on the screens this week. It says, legacy can mean passing something on intentionally. And unfortunately, it also means legacy can mean passing something on unintentionally. It's generational sin. It happens. It's crazy. What one parent does that dismantles the family, it, it puts it into the next generation, and the likelihood that they'll repeat that same sin is higher than before. That's why freedom is so important. But what one generation or legacy can pass on things that are unintentional. So I want to start with just something before we go any further. There's a foundational truth that the rest of the message hinges on, that if you do not agree with, nothing I say matters. So I want to unpack this really quick. We care about Jesus. At this church, we bow to Jesus, the mission, and to each other. And one of the things that we know from Jesus that we find in the, in the New Testament is we find all his teachings, but there's two important things that he left us with when he ascended into heaven. The first was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is everything. It is our helper. It is our mediator. It is our power. It is our faith. It is our gift giver. It is our conviction and a lot in between. And we don't do anything without the help of the Holy Spirit. The number two thing that he gave us, which is a gift, was the church. The organization and the structure of the church. We like to say that the local church is the hope of the world. Now, I really important that a, a, a Christ, preaching the good news of Christ crucified, local church is the hope of the world. Now, why is that important? Because if we say that, we're also saying what is not the hope of the world. So that's where I want to be really clear. Your small group is not the hope of the world. Your personal ministry is not the hope of the world. Your traveling basketball team is not the hope of the world. Your school is not the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. Are you with me? Okay, good, good, good. So in that, I want to unpack a few things. Number one, we like to say this. We like to say that the church is a hospital. And I agree. I like to kind of not say it's like a hospital like the Cleveland Clinic, though I'm not knocking the Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic's great. I like to say it's an emergency room. And here's the difference. If the church is a hospital like an emergency room, it doesn't really matter what department you're in. We know what the problem is and we all put our hands into the problem to solving it. And so that makes church messy because we care more about people getting well and stable than how neat everything looks because we're constantly running to the roar. So yes, very much is the church a hospital, but the church is not just a hospital. The church is also a hub. I like this word. The definition of hub is 
Something in the effective center and activity, the axle in which everything turns upon. The church is a hospital and it's a hub, but it's not just a hospital and a hub, right? Yes, I, I think it's amazing that church is on the first day of the week because it sets into motion your cadence. Everything about your life should revolve around Sunday being this day that you put the first things first. But the church is not just a hospital. It's not just a hub. It's also a home. Yes, the church is a home. It's a place where we find safety and shelter. But you know what else we find in homes? Love. And in my home, a belt. <laughs> just, just my house? Okay. My parents didn't think that was funny at the first service. It's a place where we find safety and shelter, and it's also where we find the burden of development. Discipline is key to development. If you don't believe me, let your kid do whatever he wants. I hope you're with me. There's a burden of development. Yes, it's supposed to be safe, but yes, we are supposed to speak truth to each other. We all need to hear truth. We all have behaviors and beliefs that we have to surrender and submit to the cross and crawl ourselves up on the altar, as Romans says, and die to ourselves daily. Every single one of us, not just you, but also me and you, all of us. If you do not think you need to change, you're a liar. It's that simple. It's a place of discipline, and discipline is good. The Bible tells us that the Lord disciplines those who he loves because discipline says, I care about you and I see your potential and I want to help you see it in yourself as well. Why does this matter? Because we are the hope of the world preaching the good news of Christ crucified. And we have to help people see in them what Christ sees in them and what he was willing to die for. Because when we unpack that potential, the world changes. So while yes, the church is a hospital, yes, it's a hub, and yes, it's a home, it will only ever be an extension of the family unit. And I have to confess to you, I wish that was not true. I wish that what happened at home didn't affect here. I wish that Sunday mornings weren't stressful and we yelled at each other and told us to put our nice clothes on and make presentable and smile and not fight. I wish that we could be honest and when, when people saw us in the lobby and they said, how are you doing? And you're like, great. But inside you're, you're going through hell. See, what, what happens outside just affects us. And the great lie is that we can separate those areas. And I think it's funny because Satan does his best work on Sundays. I'll, I'll give you an example. My, my son, he's been working hard on his chores. First week of school, he loves it. Thank you, Jesus. Um, He's been working hard and he's been saving his money and so he bought a Lego set. And of course I go to Amazon because it's next day delivery and I order him a Lego set. And wouldn't you know it, that it decides not to deliver on the day in which he could play with it and build it, but it delivers, because it was late, at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. When we're not playing with Legos, we're getting ready to go to church. And there's my son having a meltdown because what he worked for is right here. And you tell me Satan isn't real. Yes, he is. It was proof this morning for me. I know Satan hits us when we're down. So I want to be clear. An unhealthy family equals an unhealthy church. 
But the cool part is, is healthy families equal a healthy church. Now, I want to be very clear because I don't want people to hear me wrong or to think about something because sometimes we unfortunately and, and incorrectly equate health to perfection. So I want to be really clear. Healthy does not equal perfect. That's what facilitates the lie that we have to be presentable at all times. Healthy does not mean perfect. Healthy, on the other hand, means intentional, not accidental, not happenstance, not I hope steps, not I wish steps, but intentional steps in the right direction. It's the habits of a home. They have to be created. I love to tell new people when I meet them because I'm, I'm into loving people and I think it's really amazing when people know that you know them, that you care about them, that they're here. And one of the things I love to do is we do this thing called a 10-minute party. It's the first uh, Sunday of the month and we invite all the people that have come to church uh, for or more visits. Why do I do that? Because I love to walk in and be like, hey, I'm Kyle. I'm so glad you're here. And I tell them their name because they need that reminder that they, what their name is. That's a joke. I just am saying I know their name. And I say, you know what's crazy is it's how many times have you been here? And then before they answer, I tell them how many times they've been there. It freaks them out. But then I say this. I said, you know what's exciting about that? Is the law of habits tells me that you decided if you were going to church today, not where. Because when you do something repeated more than three times, it becomes a habit in your life. And they go, huh, you're right. And I go, well, how, how about we get you involved? Because I think the family of God needs your gifts to be better. And it's amazing. And so that, what am I saying is that there's habits that produce health. It's daily disciplines that drive us to the destination that we're going to go. But, but can I, can, that, that's good. We're all nodding and smiling. But now can I punch you in the gut? I'm sorry. I'm just going to punch you in the gut. You ready? Bringing your kids or going to church doesn't make you healthy. Don't believe me? When you sit in your garage, does that make you a car? Of course not. And why am I saying that? Because unfortunately, I think a lot of people think that the church can fix their situation. And that's not true. It's not true. If you're a family that's out of control, has no discipline, and then you yell at your kids and tell them that God matters and drag them to church, we're not going to change them. In fact, the church is only going to reinforce the habits of the home or expose and challenge bad habits. Now listen, what I, what, I, what I find amazing is that a lot of kids who graduate high school and they step into college for the first time, they walk away from church. Why? Because all of a sudden, everything that they believe theologically and philosophically gets challenged by a competing ideology and they only know how to believe what their parents did and not why or not understand what it is in themselves that they believe. And so they just fall victim to the majority narrative, not what their heart believes. So why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because the church on its best day is only as good as the families that are in it. For you who, who live your life Monday to Saturday, however you want, all the consequences of your life don't change because you made yourself go to church on Sunday. Parents, if you spare the rod and spoil the child on Sunday, we just get a chance to speak to a spoiled rotten brat. That's all that we get. 
And when I look at your lives, which data tells me, the average family goes to church once a month. The average family spends 37 minutes a day together. I wonder if our families really know the status of their things. And it sounds to me like they're not making intentional steps. They're making a lot of, I hope this works out steps. But every good thing has to be fought for. I love what uh, Justin Early says. He wrote an incredible book called Habits of the Household. You should get it. He, he writes this. He says, when it comes to spiritual formation, that's what discipleship is. It's formulating a spiritual understanding in our children. When it comes to spiritual formation, our households are not simply products of what we teach and say. In fact, they're much more products of what we practice and do. And unfortunately, there's a significant gap between the two. We often raise our families as do as I say, not as I do. We tell them that God matters, but yet we don't go to church and it's not a priority in our family. We tell them that faith matters, but if there is a competing force on Sunday, we bow to whatever the competition is because we don't want to cheat our kids of an experience. I hope, I'm, I hope I'm resonating. We're only as good as the families that are here. We're only as good as what the values of the families are that are here. So here's what I, I need you to hear. What we do on Saturdays, Sundays matter. What we, what we do on Sundays matter. That's our burden that we carry. We want to point people to Jesus. It matters. But I must submit to you, I must confess to you that what happens at home is far more important than what happens at church. What happens at home is far more important than what happens at church. Now I want you to go with me because here's the deal. The Holy Spirit is so good to us. He comes quickly in front of us. He comes quickly behind us and he's definitely with us. A couple weeks ago, I shared a passage. It was one of these last minute late night passages that the Lord just stirred in my heart and I shared it with you. And it was crazy how it completes a thought this week. But I'll read it to you. This is what I shared out of 2 Kings. I said, uh, this is about a prophet named Isaiah who was the pastor of the time. And there was a young king who found scripture or found the books of law. And he started to read it. And he submitted to God. He started asking this pastor for counsel. And he flourished. And so this pastor comes to this young king. And look what he says. Isaiah, the pastor, said to Hezekiah, the king, listen to this message from the Lord. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures you stored up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon. What is Babylon? It's the enemy's kingdom. It's as Christians, we refer to it as exile. And he goes on, he says, nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons, your children will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of Babylon's kings. And Hezekiah replied to Isaiah, the message you have given from me is from the Lord and it's good. And then the king thought to himself, at least there will be peace and security in my lifetime. And that makes me angry. And so listen, if you're sitting here and you're an aunt, uncle, uh, maybe you're a young adult who doesn't have kids, maybe you're uh, a single person and the Lord has just called you singleness, great. Maybe you're a grandparent or an older person and your kids are out of your control and you're just like, I'm glad that season's over. This world's crazy. Can I tell you that you would be guilty of thinking of peace and security in your lifetime? And I'm going to say something that's so harsh and I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. Hear my heart. 
But if you are one of these older people or seasoned vet or uh, peripheral person and you just want to come to church concerned about your own safety and security and not fight back the gates of hell for our future generations, then you should go die in some other church. Because we care about the next generation here. We care about the future generations. And I ask myself all the time, what would happen if Hezekiah would have fought for his future generations? What if he would have ensured that they understood the Bible? What if he would have ensured that they understand the goodness of God? What if he would have ensured that they could trust him with everything, not just some things? What if he would have taught them that wise stewardship and legacy thinking leads to real impact? Well, we don't know that because Hezekiah didn't do that. And when you know it, as the Bible says, Babylon came, it carried off their goods, their gold, it destroyed the city, and it took their sons and daughters, and it served to serve in other palaces. So what does that have to do with us today? As you turn to the book of Nehemiah, we're going to pick up the story of a Nehemiah 150 years after Babylon came. And guess what? Their sons and daughters were carried off. Their goods were taken, their place was destroyed, and they served other kings. But thank God we serve a God of redemption and resurrection. Because look what happens next. So let me give you some context. The first chapter of the book of Nehemiah introduces a book by bearing the name of a resident of Susa named Nehemiah. He lived in the capital of the Persian Empire. When Nehemiah heard that the walls of Jerusalem were still broken down more than a half century after the temple restoration was completed, he sat down and cried. He fasted and he prayed before God, and the Lord set in his heart a holy discontent about the status of things. And so he went to war, he went to the king, and he said, may I go and fix my city. And the king granted him his blessing. He formulated a plan to remedy the situation in Jerusalem. What does this have to do? Is the connection between the temple and the wall is significant for our theology. There was a prophet right before the book of Nehemiah. It's the book of Ezra. Ezra was a prophet who led the charge. A bunch of people from 150 years of exile came back to Jerusalem. And the first thing they did is built the church. They built the temple. And when Nehemiah heard that they built the temple, he was excited. But then he heard that, that the temple was not safe because if you know anything about the temple in the Old Testament, you know that God cared about his residence. And it was opulent and it was the best of the best because he was a God of excellence and everything he did pointed people to Jesus or to him and to his glory. And so what would happen is they, they put all of their love, they put all of their stuff, they put all of their heart, their blood, sweat, and tears into rebuilding this temple, but they didn't have any walls to protect the temple. And so the temple became a sitting duck. And it wasn't healthy because at any point it could be sacked, damaged, and redestroyed. And so Nehemiah saw this and his heart began to break and he said, I need to rebuild the walls. And so he asked the king, because guess what? Nehemiah was a eunuch serving the palace king named Cyrus. He was his cupbearer, which meant that he drank everything that the king was supposed to drink first to ensure there was no poison. That's an awful job, by the way. And he goes to Cyrus. He says, hey, my people, they're in disgrace. The God that we serve, he, he has no protection. Our people have no protection. Can I go and I rebuild my city? And Cyrus blessed him to that endeavor. And so he and his friends, they went. 
And I want to pick up the story because I'm going to fly through it. And someday the book is so rich, we're going to come back and do a whole series on it. But I'm just going to work through this pretty quickly. But I want to pay attention to this part. It's found in chapter two. It says this, Nehemiah, on the night that he arrived, he slipped out. Taking only a few other with him, he, he did not tell anyone about the plans that God had put on his heart for Jerusalem. I, I, I want you to pause right there. Why is that important? Because you have to understand something. At this church, we believe that God is working. We believe that he is asking us to rebuild our city. He's asking us to rebuild his church. He's asking us to participate in his forcefully advancing kingdom. When it comes to our next-gen environments, can I tell you, we are not leading through consensus. We're not leading through everyone else's opinion. No, we have found a small group of pioneers, and we've asked them to go with us, and we've went, and we've seen the, the ruins of what was. We see the environments and what they are, and we see the data that says, here are all the threats. Here's what's happening to the next generation. And so we have gone and we've inspected because we need pioneers, because we're going somewhere new. What does that mean? It means that what got us here isn't going to get us there. And so change is always required. Change is required. We serve a God of change. We are to be more like the bride of Christ that he wants to come back to than we are yesterday. And tomorrow, we're supposed to be more like Christ than we were today. We are inevitably changing. If you are a person that doesn't like change, you need to come to terms that we serve a God of change. And so Nehemiah took a small group of visionaries, and he said, come with me, and let's go survey the wall. The story goes on. The city officials did not know that I had been out there or what I was doing, for I didn't say anything to anyone. But I said to this small group of people, I said, you know very well that we are in trouble. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall and end this disgrace. And so Nehemiah rallies some people and he starts to rebuild the wall. And I know you're asking yourself, what does this have to do with us today? Thank you for asking. I'm gonna spend the rest of the day in chapter three. We're going to read the whole chapter. There's a bunch of big words, and we're, we're not going to read the whole chapter because it's a long chapter, but I'm just going to highlight some verses, and I want you to follow on. I'm not going to unpack anything. We're going to read the whole thing, and then I'll explain why I read it to you because here's what it has to do with us today. It's not what they did. It's how they did it that matters. So are you ready? Chapter 3, verse 1. Elisha, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it, and they set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred. Drop down to verse three. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hassaniah. They laid the beams, they set up doors, they installed bolts and bars. Merimoth, son of Uriah, and his grandson repaired the section next to the wall. The old city gate was repaired by Jehida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Basida, whatever. They laid beams, they set up its doors, they installed its bolts and its bars. Drop down to verse 13. The valley gate, it was reported by the people from Zenoa, led by Henan. They set up doors, installed bolts and bars. They also repaired 1,500 feet of wall all the way to the Dung Gate, which is a fun name. <laughs> the Dung Gate was repaired by uh, Malchiah. Hiah, son of Rechab, the leader of Beth, he rebuilt it. He set up doors, he installed bolts, and he installed bars. Drop down to verse 15. The fountain gate was repaired by this guy, the leader of this district. He rebuilt it, he roofed it, he set up doors, installed bolts and bars. 
Then he repaired the wall all the way to the pool of Siloam, near the king's garden. He rebuilt the wall as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. Let's keep going. Verse 28, above the horse gate, the priest, because even God's holy people participated, the priest repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from their own house. Next, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of that guy, he repaired another section. And while this guy built that other section, it was across from where he lived. Verse 31, this guy, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the wall as far as the housing of temple servants and merchants across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room of the corner. That's the chapter. We see repair after repair after repair, but why does that matter? I'll tell you why. Look at this. The temple might seem like a religious institution. The church might seem like a religious institution, but walls, they feel secular. Both the sacred and the secular are necessary to fulfill God's plan to restore his people. If the walls were unfinished, the temple was unfinished. The work was a single piece. In fact, up until 500 years ago, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were one book, not two. It was always meant to be a single thought, a single goal, a single mission. Practically speaking, no wall means no city and no city means no temple. So again, what does this have to do with us? Well, over here, if you notice, and you would, why would you know this unless you knew Jerusalem? But Jerusalem is a very interesting place. It's kind of a weird shape, kind of like a kidney bean. And what's crazy is there was 10 gates to the city. They had the horse gate, the sheep gate, the dung gate, the fish gate, the water gate, all these gates all throughout the city. I'm not drawing a hairy potato. Eight, nine, ten. Ten gates. And again, why does this matter? Because here the temple was somewhere right here. And the temple is what everything pointed to why the city of Jerusalem stood. It pointed to God and his goodness. But here's what I need you to hear, church. In fact, I'll put it on screen for you. The future of our church will be decided by the fortification of our families. The future of our church will be decided by the fortification of our families. Why am I telling you that? Because who did I just tell you built the gates and the walls? And in all 10 gates, what does it say that they put up? They put up a door, bolts, and bars. Why does that matter? Because listen, church, I need you to hear this. Every one of those families that lived across the gate took it upon themselves to do one important thing, to control what got in, and what was kept out. And all of a sudden, the health of the church was all about the families around it. The wall, the structure, the fortification of people who built bars, doors, and bolts. And the burden and the health of the church was determined by the families who bled and built it and ensured that what stayed out, stayed out. And what needed in, needed in, got in. Why am I telling you that? Because I'm telling you that our church is only ever going to be as good as the families in it. And our family units are breaking down. We bow to culture more than we bow to scripture. We care more about other people's opinions than what God's is. And our families, they are surrendering to the altar of convenience and lack of opposition. And they don't realize what they're letting in to our cities. And how it's infecting the temple. 
And I tell you this because the world seems to have a plan, but yet the church doesn't. I'll give you an example. And I'm not trying to call anyone out. I'm just trying to be as transparent as possible. My, my daughter turned 11 this year. And we had this big conversation, my wife and I, and we realized, wow, you can't watch anything on TV anymore without having some level of secular influence about sexuality entering the picture. And so we had to ask ourselves, are we okay with the world controlling my daughter's understanding of sexuality or are we going to do something about it? Now, here's what we can't do is we can't go walk out, put our hand in the sand and hope it gets better. So we decided to have this formulation. We did a lot of study. We asked other parents. We resourced ourselves and we set into motion a rite of passage journey. My daughter's not in here so I can tell you more. We, we have identified a couple key dates, 11, 12, 13, 16, 18. And we're going to take our daughter on a journey when she's 11, 12, 13, 16, and 18. When she was 11, she had to do a ropes course by herself. She had to learn that she had to trust things that were outside of her control. She got to go on a zip line and it got to remember that, hey, life is good. And it was called the screaming eagle. And so I used scripture about eagles and how we're covered on the wing of eagles. It's awesome. But can I tell you what we really did is we had the sexuality talk with her. And we made sure, not my, me, I wasn't there, my wife. <laughs> to, I'll just mess everything up. But my wife talked to her about sexuality in a safe way that she could ask questions. And my wife, in her preparation for this, she asked a whole bunch of parents what they did. And the overwhelming answer, which was shocking to us, was that they did nothing. They did nothing. And why am I telling that? It's because do you want their message to be louder than yours? Because here's what I'll tell you. If you don't value it, why would they? Now, again, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just sitting here going, you know what's hard? Parenting. You know what's inconvenience? Raising kids. You know what's war? Fighting for the family. You know what's easy? Hoping it all figures works out. And I tell you that because it matters. Now, listen, I also will tell you this, two things. One, that's why we're doing this series, Hot Sauce, in the month of September. I'm bringing in the perennial expert of sexuality according to God's design, Dr. Christopher Yuan. He's going to be preaching both services, and then he's leading a seminar in the afternoon because he just wrote a brand new curriculum for parents on how to talk about holy sexuality with their kids. And he's going to share that. And he's the best. It's incredible. Don't miss it. It's September 17th. Then the next week, Dr. Greg Miller, the president of Malone University, is going to talk about why do we entrust the world with the imprinting of our kids' worldview. If our kids are establishing the worldview by age 13, do we know that as parents and are we doing anything about it? Or are we just letting school, Disney, the media, and culture establish the worldview in our kids? We have to fight for our future. And I will tell you this, you're going to experience opposition. Nehemiah testifies that. Look what happens in chapter 4. Because all of a sudden, plans got out. They started to build. And then all of a sudden, the enemy showed up. But thankfully, we serve a God who went ahead of us. And look what happens. Verse 15, it says, When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to work on the wall. 
but our habits changed. The work on the wall changed to, from then on, only half the people worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Why? Because what you build has to simultaneously be defended because everyone wants to tear it down. Next verse. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting the wall and their load and the other hand holding a weapon. Every builder had a sword belted to their side. Can I tell you, church, opposition will rise. Opposition will push back. It's war. But that's why you have to have your tool ready and your weapon ready. You have to be ready to defend and keep building. It's very imperative when you read Ephesians 6 when it says, put on the armor of God. It tells you everything you need to win in life. And you can't change yesterday, but you can't change this. And I want to talk to a few parents who are like, well, it's too late for me. I screwed up. It's too late. I, I, I messed up. I, I, I'm a grandparent now. I have no influence. My kids are gone. Or, or maybe you're a parent and you're like, my kid's a 13-year-old jerk and I, I don't know what to do. Well, can I tell you, 150 years later, God was still God. And he still cared about the rebuilding of his walls. We serve a God who resurrects what we think is dead. We serve a God who restores what we think is lost. We serve a God who rebuilds what we think is so destroyed it cannot be repaired. That's our God. And I will tell you, there is no better day to start than right now. It starts with your habits. It starts with your family. It starts with what is a priority to you? Because what Justin Early said in his Habits for the Household book is not what we say. It's what they see our kids our kids see us do. I don't know, you might be a grandparent and you have no influence. Your kids are train wrecks. Can I tell you, speak life into some other young family right now. You might be a young person. Can I just ask you to do what you want done for your kids someday? Serve this generation and maybe next generation, someone will serve your kids. If you're single right now or, 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 or you don't know what you are, you're somewhere in between, or maybe, maybe you should ensure that the health of our church is protected by serving our families. I'm gonna give you one more challenging thought and it's a really important one. My question to you is this. Is it our job to teach the Bible to people? or to teach people the Bible. And I know some of you are like, oh, pastor, that's confusing. I don't get it. Fine, I'm gonna slow it down. It's our job to teach the Bible to people or to teach people the Bible. I ask that question because one, understand its audience and makes moves based on its audience. The other just teaches the Bible and expects everyone else to fall in line, everything else to fall in line. The reason I tell you that is because this church desires to teach people the Bible. That means it requires us to consider our audience. The changes we've made in our next-gen curriculum speak to this because our pre-K right now, we understand that if they believe three things about God, they have a foundation in which elementary can build on. So our curriculum teaches them three values and it reinforces them repetitively, creatively, uniquely, and I'm going to say this again, repetitively. Why? Because the truth is the church has 40 hours a year. We don't have time to go through the whole Bible with our pre-K. We have one year 
one time a week, if we're lucky, one hour a week to make something important. And so we consider our audience and we teach those three values. But here's the best part. When they get to elementary, we build upon the three values that they know. And the next three values are shared and we unpack and our small groups reinforce and we repetitively and succinctly and creatively reteach the same three values. Middle school, we ask every one of our leaders to commit to three years and we teach three more values. And then in high school, because their brains are so much smarter, we give them four values. Why am I telling you this is because what we have done is we've worked backwards. Why are our young people walking away from God? Well, it's because they don't believe because their behaviors aren't in line with their beliefs. They don't know how to defend. They don't understand apologetics. And so when they face opposition, they cower and they operate in the majority, not stand out as aliens and foreigners of this world. We don't teach them why science doesn't conflict with the Bible. It only points to scripture because we don't take the time to educate. So what we've done is we've built these values that when our kids go off to college, they're prepared to withstand the storms of life and stay the course because the future is in their hands. And it cannot happen by, I hope it happens. It has to happen through intentional steps. And so we're going to places we've never been before. We're moving sheep into a field they have not been. And so we need pioneers, yes. And does that mean that you're either in or out? No, it just means we're, we're not gonna lead through consensus. We're gonna lead by building consensus and going where the Lord is calling us. And it requires a great deal of trust. So I need you to trust us. That doesn't mean you can't ask questions. It just means you have to trust us. Number two, it also means you need to help. Because for this to stay in line with what it is, it needs you to ensure that you keep out what needs to stay out and you let in only what advances the message of Jesus. Because everything else will take your family off course and an unhealthy family is equal an unhealthy church. I asked our team if we could do communion today because as you know, if you're a parent, all of our schools are back in session. And it's a good reminder that as we send our kids into rhythms and routines, we also have habits that form, but we also understand that it's a good time to remember that the Lord holds everything together. So if you have elements, go ahead and get those out. If you need elements, just slip up your hand. One of the ushers will bring them to you. Got a few people over here. And here's what I'll tell you. The Bible only gives one prerequisite for those who want to share in Holy Communion. It says that you must know Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, don't take communion. We'll introduce you to Jesus and then we'll take communion. It's real simple. It's awesome. He's amazing. He did what we couldn't. He made a way where there was no way. He took your sin and your shame on a cross and he said yes because he believed in you and what your future had in store. That's the message of Jesus. And we bow to him as our Lord and Savior, not just our Savior in the moment, but the Lord of our life. And I'd love to talk more with you about that. But here's what I know is that Jesus tells us on the night that he was betrayed, he took some bread. It's crazy, even Jesus was betrayed. Even Jesus faced opposition. Can I tell you, church, don't lose heart when you face opposition because you're in good company. On the night he was betrayed, he was sitting with his closest community, his intentional group, the people he spent the most time with, and he held up some bread and he said, guys, this is my body that is going to be broken for you. They had no clue what he was talking about. They're like, what, Jesus? We're on top of the world. 
Everyone just screamed Hosanna as you entered the city. But Jesus knew what was in the future. He said, no, no, my body is gonna be broken. But guess what? It's gonna be broken for you because I'm gonna do what you cannot. So today we take the body, the bread that represents the body that was broken as a reminder of what God did for us on the cross. Would you take the body? That night, after they were done eating and feasting and they were lounging and talking, he picked up a cup filled with wine. And he said, guys, you see this cup? And they're like, yeah. He said, this cup represents my blood that is about to be poured out for you. And they're like, what? He said, but it's a sign of a new covenant. It's a sign that I'm with you into the end of days and someday I'm coming back. And when I come back, everything bad will cease to exist. But until then, what you do is you remember this. And in remembering the cup and the body that's broken, it should motivate you to stay the course because I will come back for my bride. So today we remember in spite of our current situation, in spite of our current families, in spite of our current state of our world, in spite of the current everything, that we know we serve a God who is saying the best is yet to come because he's not done with us. So may we take of the blood that was spilled for our behalf. Church, would you stand as we pray? Father, thank you for your hope. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've invited us into being the defenders of your church, the builders of your church. Not because we can do it better, but because what you can do in us is better. And so, Father, would you attune our hearts to what we have to keep out of our families? Would you speak to us, not in a a shaming way, but, Father, would your Holy Spirit speak to us in an illuminating way that gets a desire set deep inside of us to change our habits for the future of our church, for the future of our families? Father, would you spotlight and identify what need we need to allow in, what we need to do more of, what is the good that we need to cling to, what continues to give us hope. And Father, as we do our part in our family, may your church thrive. May your church grow. May your glory spill out into Willoughby Hills and beyond. May Cleveland be a beacon of hope because of your families as we declare your good news. With a tool and a weapon, God, we commit to building and defending because the future is yours. And you set it into motion. So we give you this time remembering that you're a God that resurrects everything. And we thank you for your goodness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you sing with us?